Congressional Republicans roll out their health care bill to mixed reviews. Indiana's universities make their funding pleas to state lawmakers. That plus a potentially lower cigarette tax hike and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending March 10th, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, congressional Republicans unveiled their long-awaited replacement for Obamacare and began advancing it through the U.S. House. Like Obamacare, the GOP's American Health Care Act would use tax credits to help people pay for health insurance. Analyses of the bill suggest it could significantly reduce coverage that low-income Americans received under President Obama's signature legislation, which could include jeopardizing the future of Indiana's HIP 2.0 program. House Republicans are wasting no time advancing the bill through two committees already. Indiana Congressman Luke Messer praised the bill as one that will lower costs and expand choice. Congresswoman Susan Brooks, who sits on one of those two committees that already approved the bill, praises the open and transparent process. Are federal Republicans rushing their plan through? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien. John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. And Delaney, Republicans are obviously eager to fulfill a campaign promise, a long-running campaign promise, but is this going a little too fast? Is that a is it's that not really a, trick a question? question? It's a real question. It's a trick, Ed. You know, when, when President Obama <laughs> consulted with all the Republicans and everybody affected with Obamacare over a period of nine months, nine months, okay, the Republicans said it was too rushed. This is nine days. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what the fiscal impact is. They don't know who's going to be hurt by this. They don't know how many people are not going to be covered by this. And Susan Brooks saying that ridiculous statement about how transparent this process is, she ought to be ashamed of herself. That is absurd on its face. This isn't transparent at all, because we don't even know from the fiscal conservative party what the fiscal impact of this bill is going to be. And yeah, they're rushing it too fast. They don't know what they're doing. And by the way, they're not going to pass it. <laughs> how about that for yucks, too? After all this seven years, seven years of complaining about Obamacare, they don't know what they're going to do, which is... Pretty typical of the a lot White of House process too. Process tax there without any really real defense of the current healthcare system, right? I mean, so well, but does that, what does that matter? But does that? I mean, in terms of coming up for a replacement, how fast do you really need to go? I think you need to go as fast as, as possible to uh, create more options for for Americans who currently two thirds of the country has one option for their health insurance. So there's a lot of a lot in this program we've got to fix, and there's limitations to Republicans' ability. To fix it, and we set ourselves oh, up. No, 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 no. There are. There, well, okay. Well, let me. Let, I mean, if, Trump if, if said I, everybody's going to get well, covered look, for less. If I'm disagreeing with my party on this, and so be it. But we set up this narrative that when we came in, we can just pull out Obamacare and we're done. Right? That is not going to happen. And we've had to really kind of adjust the messaging here because we don't have uh, 60 Republicans in the Senate. Right? So we've, there, there's a process through the House. We're going to set up the framework for this to either repeal portions of it, amend other parts of it, to try to create a better health care system for all Americans, and then it gets passed over to the Senate. 
yeah, we don't have a fiscal yet because we're like a week into this. You know, so we are going to have a fiscal because that's the way the process works. So this idea, that, and you know they haven't passed it yet, right? I mean, they, they're moving it through the process. When it goes to the Senate, it's going to take much longer to get through the Senate than it will get through the House. So we're on the front end of what should was a campaign promise, was a commitment, is politically popular because the American health care system under Obamacare is broken. Oh, come on. We've seen Donald come Trump. On. We've seen Donald Trump uh, in his first few, in his first couple of months in office, has really tried to move at, at, a, at a pretty quick speed. He's trying to check those things off of the list sure. that he promised voters. Is that some of that bleed over? Sort of why we're seeing the initial pace to this thing. Oh, I think absolutely because he, as he told Republican congressional leaders in recent days that if this doesn't happen and there isn't a replacement preceded, I presume, by a repeal of at least some elements. I think he used the term bloodbath in 2018 in, in, yeah. in, in the midterm elections. So I think he recognizes that that was largely responsible, perhaps, for his victory in some of the states uh, that had tended to be Democratic leaning in the past, uh, and those that were feeling the pinch of of higher health care costs. So if he can't deliver. I think he rightly recognizes it could be a real albatross around the necks of, of, of uh, Democrats. And you mentioned the fiscal note. Both, uh, both folks so far have talked about that, and I think that's due Monday Tuesday. The con- or Tuesday, the Congressional Budget Office. What I think will be interesting for us to watch is when those numbers come out, will they be accepted as legitimate? Because no, the C- well, the CBO has been, is, you know, Religiously nonpartisan, right. nonpartisan. I mean, that's sort of the the arbiter or the referee in these issues. And if that's another example of throwing out the referee and saying that the the, the game news. board is fixed, right. then I don't know where we we yeah. where that leaves Congress in terms of trying to come to to agreement on if, something. If the numbers from the CBO aren't super positive for this bill, are we going to see the brakes put on a lot harder? No, I don't think we will. I think we'll see what John suggested. I think you'll see people denigrate the numbers themselves and go ahead and go forward with the plan, whatever it may be, and however it's being unveiled uh, is. Look, any time you have a a committee meeting in the wee hours of the morning and a vote to try to get this thing moved, uh, it's moving too fast. And the thing that I'm really surprised about is that for the seven years that the Republicans have been very upset about Obamacare, uh, they've had every opportunity to have a plan in their hip pocket, and there's not a plan in their hip pocket. And worse, they can't enunciate even among themselves what their philosophy behind this is. The president says one thing, and he says, oh, by the way, if you don't pass it, it's a bloodbath. I'm sure people in Congress love hearing that. And I think that, uh, you know, people in Congress, the, the conservative uh, faction of the party, the more conservative faction of the party, can't stand what's being proposed by uh, Representative or the Speaker and and the folks in the House right now. So you've got all that time that was wasted, time that could have been used to make constructively. And I think that the, the other thing that's happening is that the American people are suddenly gaining a greater understanding of this whole insurance issue. And as they gain that understanding, they start to wonder, why wasn't this fixed? Why wasn't this something that was done as we went along? Instead of creating a situation which we have now, where you have committee votes in the wee hours of the morning, you have legislation being rushed through, yes, it will hit the brakes in the Senate because uh, that's just the way the process is working, but you're still having a rushed process and you still have a lot of uh, dissension within uh, the Republican uh, Party on wa- in Washington. And, and so Donald it's Trump, astounding to me. Donald Trump promised Trump care that was cheaper and covered more people and gave more options. 
and he can't deliver that with the, the system they've set up now. So yeah, there's going to be a bloodbath, all right, in 2018, and they're going to bear the brunt of it because they don't know what they're doing. John talks about the sort of dissension in the ranks, that the different factions within the Republican Party in Congress can't seem to agree on exactly how this should work. And they have had a long time to come up with maybe more of a consensus. But how much is the newest player on the scene, Donald Trump, throwing a do you think throwing a wrench into that process? I don't think he's throwing a wrench in it. I think he's definitely driving it. I mean, he's driving the speed of this. He's, he's going to drive the uh, ultimately the, the solution. We'll find out if it's a bloodbath or not in 2018. We've got to get it right. We can Look, we control everything. We've got to get it right. And we're on our way to do it. In the, oh, not with, the, not with what's proposed, well, uh, you're not. <laughs> time, now, time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our iSmeller email and text alerts. This week's question, are congressional Republicans moving too quickly to pass the health care bill? A yes and B no. Last week's question, will Republican Luke Messer be Democrat Joe Donnelly's challenger in the 2018 election? 78% say yes. 6% say no, Messer won't run, and 16% say no, Messer will lose the GOP primary. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org IWIR and look for the poll. The proposed increase in the state's cigarette tax could be headed for changes in the Senate. The Senate has long been reluctant to approve any increase in the cigarette tax, particularly in a session where raising the gas tax is likely in the cards. Still, this week, as debate on the budget began in a Senate committee, discussion was centered around advocates of that cigarette tax hike. Now, House Speaker Brian Bosma, whose caucus has twice approved a $1 per pack increase, says the amount of the hike could come down to help ease its way through the other chamber. Bosman noted the concerns of convenience store owners are the increase putting prices above those of neighboring states. And Bosma says only raising the tax enough to meet Ohio's prices, which would be around a 60 cent per pack hike, might be the path forward. Mike O'Brien, could playing around with the number be the answer to passing a cigarette tax hike? I think it takes some of the wind out of the convenience store argument around the borders. Um, I think when this issue was discussed, when raising the cigarette tax was discussed in the context of improving health care and it was packaged with a couple other items that were really focused on reducing smoking, it had a higher chance to pass than it does now, which is really just to fill a hole in the budget that's created by um, the road funding bill uh, when they move the sales tax um, on gasoline transactions over in, into road funding, which I, which I think is appropriate. Right. Um, I think when you just discuss this tax increase in the context of we need it to add to the bottom line in the budget, I think it makes it harder. I think if it was still focused on health with that kind of coalition wrapped around it, on the Senate at least, that, which is more, who is more skeptical than the House certainly was, um, it, they'd have an easier path. That's actually a question I've been fascinated with. Which is the better argument to sell the cigarette tax increase? Is it let's fill the hole in the budget, or is it we need less people to smoke in this state so that's how we that's one of the ways we accomplish that. Or is it that we need enough money to pay for HIP 2.0 that that Mike Pence wants to repeal and the 375,000 Hoosiers? Well, I don't think the cigarette tax insurance. is going to do it. No, but it's going to help. That's I right. think it all has to go to health care. I, I think it does. And smoking cessation is a good, um, I think, argument to make for it. I don't think I think Mike's right. I think using it to fill the hole because they don't have the guts to raise the taxes or cut the decreases in the corporate income taxes is not a very persuasive argument. I think right. putting it in HIP 2.0 is a good idea. That program's going to be around for a long time. Right now, uh, they're trying not to... A, not according to Mike Pence, it isn't. Right now, they're trying to have it both ways. It's technically filling a hole, but the hole it's filling is also technically in the Medicaid budget in the general fund. So it, it, will that be successful? Uh, well, it depends on what happens in the overall picture. One of the things that's missing is what's the Senate thinking in terms of how it wants to fund road funding. 
And I think that there's long been uh, an indication from Senator Kenley and, and others in the Senate that they want to really explore the notion of tolling. And that really was not considered in the House. So you might be able to fill some of the hole from shifting the gasoline tax over to the general fund uh, by using tolling. You may be able to reframe the issue and use more of the um, cigarette tax, or maybe even all of it, for health and, and Medicaid. So I don't think we've seen the last chapter written on this yet. Well, and I think if, if the Senate's opposed to taking that sales tax out and put it in the road, so it doesn't create a hole. So you've really left no reason to raise the cigarette tax if it's not just being used for health. Would, would only raising it 60 cents be, be enough to take the wind out of the sails of, those, the, of the convenience store owners, which have been one of the loudest voices opposing well, this? I thing? mean, if you do a, a comparison of convenience stores on one side of the state border and with the neighboring states right. taking Kentucky out of the mix, which already has, you know, it's, it's sort of the outlier anyway. Right. Yeah, it, it, it does take some of the sting out and therefore probably would make it easier for lawmakers who have constituents who might be dramatically affected, those in the border counties and, and retailers in those areas, might be less inclined to oppose it. Uh, so I do think lowering it makes it, it uh, maybe more palatable. But you mentioned the notion of trying to have it both, accompl- ways. Have it yeah. both ways. And that's, and Luke Kenley uh, in the Senate talked about this before. The, uh, keep in mind that if this tax is successful, yes, it's supposed to generate revenue for sus- smoking cessation and those types of things. But also it's about life, uh, helping to steer Hoosiers toward healthier lifestyles. And if the tax has a desired effect, fewer people will buy cigarettes, will smoke, and therefore the money available will shrink. And so it may fill a hole, and the hole is constant, but the plug is getting smaller if, in fact, it's as effective as, as supporters hope it is in combating smoking. Indiana's public colleges and university presidents went to the Senate this week to make their cases for funding increases. Each university presentation to lawmakers generally goes the same way. The school president talks about what their school does well, how they're improving, and then how much money they want. In some cases, as with Indiana University's Michael McRobbie, the school president frets over the budget bill's funding increases. McRobbie says IU won't be able to keep tuition increases low at the funding level proposed by the House Republicans. Others take some issue with the state's performance funding formula. Purdue President Mitch Daniels notes that his university, with improved on-time graduation rates and a five-year tuition freeze, is the only school whose operating funds are set to decline. John Katzenberger, I want to start with you on this. Uh, these criticisms and complaints from the university presidents aren't new, as I mentioned, but uh, are they warranted? Well, I think given recent history, uh, you can understand where they're coming from. Uh, but I think that they are not going to receive a sympathetic ear in the legislature. I think the legislature has, has you know, established the trend that they're on, um, and I think that they intend to stay on that same trend. So I, I think that the argument's falling on deaf ears. A 1.7% increase for higher education funding in, in the budget that came out of the House. Is that good enough? Well, the cliché answer would be, it depends on who you ask. Certainly if you ask... Uh, Michael McRobbie or Mitch Daniels and, and their colleagues and counterparts, the answer would be no, certainly long term. I mean, keep in mind that, that if you look at how this has unfolded, when John and I, for instance, were fresh out of college ourselves. A hundred years start, ago. A hundred years ago, back in the, I think we we're celebrating the centennial of the state then. Place to see era, was <laughs> We, when we first got to the state house back in the 80s, uh, there was about two thirds, or at least 60%, of base funding, day to day operating expenses, say at Purdue and Ball State and IU were covered by tax dollars. 
and now it's probably about a third. And at the same time, it's not just a, a reduction in, in funding, it's, it's also um, the notion that it's, those dollars are coming with greater strings. So that uh, we're going to give you less, is the message I hear, we're, but we're going to put more strings on what we are giving you, and you need to make sure that you know, people who get or indirect beneficiaries of this funding get done with this degree in this amount of time and go into this career path. So, I mean, it's a, if you're a university, it's the proverbial rock and a hard place. Luke Kenley was among the, the loudest voices in the legislature a few budgets ago in, in, in chastising university presidents for raising tuition too much in the middle and coming out of the recession. And they, their response to him was, well, if you give us more money, we won't. So he gave them more money in, in, in subsequent budgets. Michael McRobbie held that sort of over his head again. Well, we're just going to have to drive tuition up again. Is that compelling to somebody like Luke Kenley, who really clearly focuses a lot on that? I'm not sure. I mean, we'd have to ask Luke Kenley. But I th um, that hearing did focus in large part on the outcomes. It was, it was as much about the dollars in as what are we actually getting here? What is the graduation rate? What is the on-time graduation rate? What's the job placement? They want to know, the legislators on that committee wanted to know, what are we getting for all this money? I think that's right. Well, and Mitch Daniels told him that they had improved on all those scores, and he gets his budget cut as a result. I, I, you know, I don't think, I think we ought to avoid the myth that we're supporting higher education in this state anymore. I mean, we don't like preschool, we don't like higher education, they might just think about going private. I'm serious. I mean, for example, the law school in Bloomington, the Maurer School of Law, gets less than 18% of the money from the, from the state government. Less than 18%. Why would you stay part of the university system under that? You could go out and raise your tuition as you saw fit and offer the courses you see fit and do fundraising on your own and save that heck with the state. The problem in that formula is they could never afford to buy the capital, the infrastructure of the oh, campus. Oh, I bet you they could. Uh, that would be real tricky. Yeah. Well, they'd be asking well, we'll you, they start asking you for a lot. So I think your phone's well, going to Well, they do that. every year. <laughs> <laughs> a House Republican's Twitter account was essentially held hostage this week. What, House Roads Committee Chair Ed Soliday had a contentious exchange on Twitter a few weeks ago with Indiana businessman Don Brown. Brown criticized Soliday's road funding plan. Soliday called Brown stupid, then deleted his account after backlash to that response. But once you've deleted your Twitter account, anyone can take that name after a set period of time, and someone took Soliday's. An unidentified person who claims they're not Don Brown said they'd keep the account until Soliday apologized to Brown. After Soliday then called the unnamed troll a character assassin, the faux Soliday said they'd lock the account permanently. John Schwannis, is this another example of the perils of social media for lawmakers? We certainly have seen uh, plenty of examples, and it, this proves that uh, a photograph or a quip or even a retweet or... Um, a lot of damage can be done in 140 characters, uh, despite what you might think. There's no doubt that social media can be an incredibly effective tool for lawmakers in terms of communicating with constituents and, and keeping them apprised of what's going on and getting feedback. But in, don't try this at home, you know, I guess is the moral of the story, <laughs> because um, there seems to be, you know, you, you get that in your hand and your thumbs start moving and the brain shuts off. And, it, and we've seen it... it the congressional level and the executive branch at the federal level. We've seen it uh, certainly in state We're government. At the state level, yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of times, of course, people say, "Well, my phone was taken from me for a 24-hour period." The, 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 cell, the cell phone theft rate must be through the roof of people <laughs> taking <laughs> taking it temporarily. John, John, uh, initially, uh, after the initial exchange, Soliday certainly didn't look good. Uh, but is this now has has the worm turned a little bit for him? Is he starting to look a little better after this? 
holding hostage of the account and all of that? You know, I, I do think that there is a potentially some element of that here. Um, you know, you become sympathetic when you don't have any control over your own identity and what's being said um, allegedly on your behalf, and, and it's denigrating or or something like that. But um, I think that John makes a really good point about um, social media. I think it's interesting that there really aren't norms yet for how social media is both produced and consumed. And as we're in this churn period, um, the, the accounts that get all of the uh, attention seem to be the ones that are either provocative or screw-ups. And, uh, and, you know, there are 150 legislators in our General Assembly, and I'll bet 140 of them with Twitter accounts um, have no problem because they're just sending out, I, I got this bill passed and this bill, and we're going to have a meeting on Saturday morning at whatever time. Um, it's those other ten that uh, you see these kinds of things. And if you jazz up the Fiscal Policy Institute Twitter account, you'll get more retweets. <laughs> yeah, I and know. Play, and play, consultant, <laughs> play consultant for a second. If, you, if a lawmaker came to you and said, how should, I, how should I do a Twitter account? Is the simplest advice, don't tweet? Yeah, that's the simplest advice. And in terms of the other social media, you have staff, not enough staff, I'll grant you, but you have staff that can read through things before you post them or send them out. And that's really probably a wise thing to do. Anything you do in the heat of the moment. And frankly, what he called that individual wasn't all that bad. No, stupid. You know? on, on the scale of Twitter, the things Yeah, that, that is really not even all in caps, for crying out loud. Michael O'Brien, basically the same question. I mean, Twitter can be an incredibly valuable tool for, for that kind of one-on-one -on -one connection with constituents, but are its perils out, do its perils outweigh that connection? Well, certainly, if you screw up, then no. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. um, but... Yeah. There's just got to be a process around it. I mean, you just have to. It's like putting out a press release. I mean, you're not yeah. just like if somebody it, else. You're not just firing stuff out over email or, or a man. Even if it's the person next to you in or any media. Yeah. yeah, you just got to think about state house. And floor. keep in mind, John makes a good point about no norms. I'm not sure, but I don't think statute uh, here or anywhere else has necessarily kept up with how these documents, electronic communications, are chronicled or or preserved. Are they? Do they fall under? Uh, I don't know the answer. I, has they archive the the president's tweets. Uh, they right, did I mean, under Obama. Say the Indiana, <laughs> and then now Donald Trump. Yes. Say the Indiana uh, Public Records uh, Act. I don't think necessarily. No, it does not address it not address at all. Among other wow. things, the Public Records Addressed uh, Act doesn't address. <laughs> Reports this week that State Senator Lonnie Randolph will challenge Indiana Democratic Party Chair John Zodi. The news advanced primarily by the Times of Northwest Indiana says East Chicago Senator Randolph will seek to take control of the State Democratic Party from current chair John Zodi, who's running for re-election. Randolph, a member of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus, is reportedly mounting the challenge because of a lack of diversity among recent statewide candidates for the party. Democrats have had only one African-American candidate for a statewide office in the last seven elections. Zodi, who became party chair in 2013, enjoys support from some of the party's top officials, including Senator Joe Donnelly and Congressman Andre Carson. And Delaney, though Randolph's bid seems like a long shot, does this reveal a troubling issue within the party? I don't think so. I mean, it would be nice to think that the state chair could just pick the candidates that run for various offices. Unfortunately, it's not true. I mean, I think, I think Senator Randolph... Well, Democrats do. Yeah, no. Senator Randolph's <laughs> uh, uh, goal of having a more diverse ticket is a good goal. But John Zodi is going to be reelected, and there's no dissension on that. 
Is is there a troubling lack of diversity at the in the Indiana Democratic Party's leadership? I've long been concerned about the lack of diversity <laughs> in the Indiana Democratic Party. Look, Republicans right now we have we, we hold seven statewide offices. We have one white dude. That's true. And one black dude. And a lot of women. And a lot of women for the party that's at I war think with women. they can save money on the, uh, yeah, the party election. Yeah, but you don't have women in positions that really make a difference. You have women in ministerial positions. I think they just. It would be that. nice to have women as governors or senators, for example. You should take the lead. Save money. We, we actually did. Make an we election, put the attorney general in. Make it an election of one. Just go to Joe Donnelly, who's already said what he wants. He's he's the guy again who will be uh, you know. It's uh, not quite the same with the senator as it is with the governor. Uh, he's he's the titular head of the party right now in terms no, of. No, you're the saying still who, not who quite takes the, same. the state party yeah, chair. Who picks that's what I, no, that's right. what I'm. Oh, I'm not saying make him the chair. I'm saying that's the only vote that counts. Really, I would argue. I, I, no, I that's, think uh, even though you, even the though you governor's vote, her, and the you governor's vote right. is the only vote that counts. Uh, the senator's votes are not quite. As strong. Well, you don't have it's, the governor's office yeah, right You have now, one so. office. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> at the moment. Holcomb, Holcomb's vote is the only one. Finally, March Madness is upon us, as we'll find out the feel of 68 this weekend. President Donald Trump, breaking with recent tradition, will not do a public bracket for college basketball's premier attorney. Mike O'Brien, should people get a chance to see Donald Trump's picks? I think you should let Mike Pence do it, and then he can just pick out you or Hanover. It can be like, are you Hanover <laughs> in the final? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't care about Donald Trump's picks. I want to see his tax returns. How about that? You can't just have fun with one of these. No, John. Who do you uh, who do you have winning the whole thing this year? Trump University. Trump University. <laughs> Does it still and exist? I don't think there's any truth in the report that, it, that he has the final game between uh, St. Petersburg U and Moscow State. I, I don't think that. Ah. Uh, uh-huh. All right. That's okay. Indiana. Got to go for your rest of Russian. Uh, <laughs> that's here. Indiana that's Week in Review one. for no. this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien. John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.